You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Angie Thomas, author of The Hate You Give, joins the Post to discuss her new book, Concrete Rose, and the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement on her work. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Author Angie Thomas made a big splash when her senior project in college became The Hate You Give, her debut novel in 2017, which debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list and then was turned into a fantastic movie by the same name. Now, Thomas is out with her fourth book, Concrete Rose. It's debuting at number one on the New York Times bestseller young adult hardcover category list. And it goes back to the beginning by taking us to the early lives of the older protagonists in The Hate You Give, and it is the reason she is here today. Angie Thomas, it is a thrill to welcome you to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Um, listen, uh, we'll talk about The Hate You Give in, uh, in a moment. The movie is superb, and we'll talk about why I think it's superb uh, in a moment. But why did you decide to write about Maverick Carter, who's the father of the main character in The Hate You Give in your new book, Concrete Rose? Well, Maverick is the character that I was asked about the most, which, you know, is kind of surprising since we're talking about a young adult novel and in The Hate You Give, he was the father. You wouldn't think the father would get that much attention. But my readers from the young kids at telling me that Maverick is one of their favorite characters to the moms and the dads who were just in awe of him and inspired by him. Um, it, it was very apparent that there was a lot of love for this character, but there were a lot of questions too. And so many of my readers wanted to know how did he become the man and the father that we see in The Hate You Give when we know um, that he was once in a gang, he once sold drugs, he even once went to prison. And those aren't things you always line up with wonderful father and pillar of community. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was it was their questions that led me to decide, you know what, maybe I should explore this character in his story to give a bit more perspective and understanding and show that he's not so much a unicorn as people think he is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have, a, I have a, uh, an, a confession to make, an admission. I didn't see, I didn't watch The Hate You Give, even though I read, I saw all the reviews and people were raving about it. I didn't watch it until a couple of days ago. And I didn't because, quite frankly, suffering from PTSD, I could not take, I thought, another movie where we would see something bad happen to somebody Black. But watching it a couple of days ago, to your point, Maverick was just this character that I just drew, I was just drawn to him primarily because I'm looking at a person, even though he's in a gang, he was in a gang, even though he went to prison, even though he did all these things that I personally couldn't relate to, but the man was someone I recognized. And um, is that part of what people were reacting to in, in Maverick in The Hate You Give? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say the movie played a role as well in me writing this book. Russell Hornsby's portrayal of Maverick was phenomenal. 
Um, mm-hmm. It was truly a gift. And I was able to have conversations with him on set about the character that made me dig deeper into Maverick and who he was and what led him to be who he was. So um, the the character has 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 gotten this big fan base. And I think it is because there's something about the quality of the man that really draws people in. Um, and mm-hmm. it's the fact that he did do all of these things that there are a lot of people who can't connect with that. They can't connect with, you know, going to prison or being in a gang, but they can connect with wanting to protect your family. They can connect with wanting to improve your community um, and, and empowering your children. So um, I hope it goes to show people that um, there are some aspects of all of us that we can connect with once we get to know each other as opposed mm-hmm. to making quick judgments. You know, and another confession, I was tearing up in many places, Mm -hmm. primarily because of Maverick, that opening scene, talking to his kids, but especially the scene after the run in at the at the restaurant in the parking lot with the police. And he lines them up in the in the um, uh, in the front yard. Yeah. So powerful. And I bring that up because there's another thing about Maverick and about your book and the movie. And also I was thinking about um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, a a movie from 2019. You are about humanizing Black characters. And the emotion that Maverick brings to just to the story and the fact that you allow him to be to be an emo- an emotional person but also a a complex person talk about how about how you wanted in this way to humanize black masculinity uh, that was so important for me to do um when i set out to write the hate you give with maverick just as a minor character. It was important for me to show this complex man, um, this complex father who is not only active in his children's lives, but he shows a full range of emotions. Um, And now with writing his story in Concrete Rose, it was so important for me to show a black boy um, who shows a full range of emotions. There's this idea um, that black men, black boys don't cry. Um, And and Mm. society has made them feel as if they can't cry. Um, black boys will tell you all the time, I'm not weak. I can't show. I can't be weak. I can't cry. I can't cry. Yes, you can. Um, it, it's it's a part of the white supremacy of this society to make black men and black boys feel as if showing emotion makes them weak, when in turn, it also dehumanizes them. It makes them seem like they are emotionalist brutes who, you know, who it's okay. It's justified to to hunt them down and kill them. Um, If you don't see somebody as human, it it takes away that value on their life and you will find reasons to justify why it's okay that they lose their life. So it's all a Mm -hmm. part of that. It's all a part of that ecosystem. And for me as an author, uh, specifically as someone who has dedicated herself to showing black children mirrors that are authentic, that empower them, it's so important for me to show black boys this tough, hard black boy who also cries, who's also vulnerable, who's also sensitive, so that it will normalize it for them, but also so it will normalize it for others as well Mm -hmm. um, in this world that they step into. All right, so um, anyone looking at the screen right now will know that it is is obvious you are are not a black man. Um, So what (laughs) I'm wondering is, 
um, and did not grow up as a black boy. So how did you, how di how did you learn about the inner workings uh, of a of a black boy to be able to write um, in that voice as you do in Concrete Rose? Yeah, yeah. I've never been a black boy. I've never been a seventeen year old <laughs> black boy. I never will be. But um, I had to do the work, and for me, that meant talking to black boys, talking to black men, listening to them, letting them read the book before it ever hit the shelves, way before it even hit maybe my editor's hands, um, getting their perspectives on it, listening to them, um, reading books by black men, reading books about black boys by black men, um, and talking to some of my fellow authors who maybe write outside of their perspectives as well. Um, I, I will never tell anyone that you can't write anything because you have every right to write what you want to write, but it's so important to respect who you're writing about. And, and that's what I set out to do. I respect black boys and black men so much that I wanted to hear from them before I did anything else with this story. Um, so it was so important for me to get that perspective. And, and again, just listen, listen. Mm -hmm. That is such a key with anything you write. You need to listen to whoever you're writing about and whoever you're writing for. Now, a second ago, you just said that you you had uh, black men read your your manuscript before it even went to your editor. So it made me wonder: Did you get anything wrong? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, there was one instance early on where I was almost hesitant to let Maverick cry on page because I know so many black men in my life and black boys even who they hold that part back. And I had fallen into that trap as well as a creative, like, okay, I'll just let him hold back. And I had a black man tell me, no, don't let him hold back, sis. We need to see this on page. We need to be given that permission more so um, than we have been in art even. So I had to check myself on that and listen to him and recognize even the importance of letting a black boy cry on the page. Um, you would think um, that that wouldn't be a big deal. It, it, it shouldn't be a big deal. Mm -hmm. But the importance of that, I didn't recognize at first until that black man told me. And you know, that is one of the things, just the emotion, seeing a black man just being, or a child being emotional is something that I didn't realize I'd never seen before mm. until I saw the movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And there's this one scene where one of the characters just, you think, something bad is gonna happen, a gun is gonna appear, and instead the guy just bursts into tears. And they're, yeah. they're there hugging in the street, comforting each other. And for me, as I thought, wait, I've never, I have never seen anything like this before. You know, Angie, you have said many times that um, you, one of the reasons why you you write the way you write is because you want black children and as an old black man by extension black people to see themselves in books in a way that just doesn't seem apparent right now talk more about that 
Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is from a woman by the name of Dr. Rudine Sims Bishops. And she says that books are mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And, and that's something I take with me as a writer every time I sit down to write a book. And for me, the most important thing is to craft the mirrors. It's wonderful when a book is a window or sliding glass door for somebody else, but I recognize the importance of young people like me young people who reflect who I was at even 16 and 17, to have mirrors um, and, and to have books that show them themselves, to see that they can be the main character, they can be the hero. And it's important for other kids to see them in that light as well. Um, it, it's important for other kids to see Black kids that way. I mean, just think about it for a second. And this is not me knocking a book, but just think, what if Harry Potter was Black? Do you understand what that would have meant for <laughs> Black kids and then for other kids to see a character like that who was Black, a character of that magnitude, the power that would have had? So I recognize that for me, I'm not going to write Harry Potter, but I'm going to write stories that show Black kids just how beautiful they are, how amazing they are, how complex they are, how different they are um, from one another even. And, and, and I'm gonna show other people that as well. You know, you, how was it writing Concrete Rose in the middle of yet another racial reckoning in this country uh, in the wake of the, the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all the names that have now become countless. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Um, at times the book felt like an escape because it is set in 1998, 99, which makes it historical fiction. I'm sorry if I just made everybody feel old. <laughs> it hurt my feelings. <laughs> I know, it hurt mine when I found out, believe me. Um, but it, it felt like an escape at times, but then I had to remind myself that these things were happening in 1998, 1999. We just didn't have video cameras. We just didn't have hashtags. We just didn't have social media. Um, and I think though, the importance of humanizing Maverick hit me even harder as I watched the video of Mr. George Floyd losing his life. Because in those last moments of his life, he was not seen as a human being. He was seen as a threat. And the weight and the responsibility that I have as a creative to humanize black men, it felt even greater. Um, and, and it made me look at Maverick through an even clearer lens. Um, and, it, and it made me recognize that the power a story like this can have on future leaders, on young people, not just, again, who will see themselves in this book, but young people who don't see themselves in this book, adults who don't see themselves in this book. It would be nice if somebody read Concrete Rose and the next time they stepped on an elevator and a real maverick got on the elevator with them, they didn't pull their purse closer. That would be nice. If I can do anything like that towards impacting the way someone views Black boys and Black men, I'm going to keep doing it. You just took my breath away with that, uh, Angie. Um, you, you have said... Um, <clears throat> you wanted uh, the hate you give to be almost a girl version of Boys in the Hood. How so? Boys in the Hood was the film that showed me that our stories could be told and could be told authentically, no holes barred. Um, John Singleton, what he did with that movie and how he changed the culture 
um, we're forever indebted to him. Um, what it allowed me as a creative to do was to recognize I can tell this story set in a neighborhood like this and not hold back. Um, and and when I look at Boys in the Hood and and what it meant to the culture, but also the mirror it gave, um, that's what I wanted to recreate, but through the lens of a Black girl. Um, so we see this young woman who lives in this neighborhood and who's learning more about why her neighborhood is the way it is. You know, you can look at Furious Styles and Maverick and you can make some connections there. Um, the way that Furious Styles, he, he, he really talks to his son and, and really um, and empowers him and other kids in the neighborhood. We see that through Maverick as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted that, if nothing else, in this story. But also, I wanted to show this young woman who is navigating a neighborhood that has so many different aspects of it that could affect her in either a positive way or a negative way. And it's all about her coming of age in the middle of that. In the same way we see, see Trey come of age in Boys in the Hood, despite what's happening around him. Um, his circumstances don't, his neighborhood doesn't define him, but it does help him develop into the man that we will later see. And I wanted Star to be the same way in The Hate You Give with her neighborhood. So let's talk about your writing career and how and how it got sparked, because you you were the only black student in your in your writing class or in one of in one of your writing classes. Right. And there was some uh, an assignment that was given where everyone was asked, well, what did you do this summer? If yeah, I remember I was, right. Go yeah, ahead. you're pretty on it. You're pretty on it. You've done your research. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I was the only black student in my creative writing program at my college. Um, and I was the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program at my college. And, and that's partially because the program was young, but you know, there were other aspects, mm -hmm. let's just be honest. Um, but my first day on campus in my first class ever, it was a creative writing course. And it was really like an intro course for everyone. And so every student in the program was in this course. And the professor had us all go around and talk about what we'd done that summer, where we'd gone that summer. And I'm listening to my classmates, my mostly white upper class classmates, talking about how they did mission trips in South America or they traveled to France with their family or they were... Um, in London for several weeks. And me, I'd never left Mississippi at that point. Um, I'd never gone outside of the state. For me, a, a vacation was traveling to the Gulf Coast. Um, mm -hmm. And I, that summer, I hadn't gone anywhere. Um, I, I, my family, we couldn't afford a vacation. We were trying to make sure I could get into college. And when it was my turn, I said, I was just here. And and it was heartbreaking to say that. And so I went to my car and I cried because I suddenly felt like I didn't belong. Because here I was, this young person in this class with all these other students who have all of these um, experiences from around the world. And my, my experiences come from the hood. This is all I know. And I suddenly felt like I didn't belong. But it took a professor telling me that the neighborhood where I live had stories that deserved to be told. I could not be the one to tell him. His advice paid off. <laughs> His advice paid off. <laughs> was this the same, pro the, the professor who told you that, 
Was that the same professor who in the class went around and asked everybody what you do this summer? Or is it a different professor? It was actually a different one. It was a different one. Um, and he's actually an author himself, the one who gave me that advice. Um, and, and he gave me some of the best writing advice I'd ever received. Um, and, and it was telling me to why not be the one to tell those stories. Um, so I feel like I paid a lot of money for that, <laughs> that one piece of advice that changed my life. <laughs> and so, um, well, let me ask you this. Was that Professor Black? He wasn't. He wasn't. And, um, and, and so, and, what, and, go ahead. Go ahead, Angie. And he's the least, uh, probably the least kind of person you would expect to have made such an impact on me. He's an author of civil war fiction. So <laughs> we come from two very different, uh -huh. <laughs> very but different perspectives. But he saw, but he saw something in you. Did you, did you, did you seek him out or did he pull you aside and say, Hey, write what you know, you have a voice, you have stories to tell. I sought him out um, because I was getting ready when he told me that I was getting ready to start early work on my senior project, but I didn't know what I wanted to write. Well, I had an idea, but I wasn't sure about it. And I told him, I said, you know, for this senior project, I'm thinking about writing a story um, inspired by not just my neighborhood, but some of the social justice um, that I see happening right now. Specifically, at that time, it was the death of a young man named Oscar Grant in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. um, and I told him, I'm ins I really want to write something about this, but I'm not sure. And he said, why not? Why not write about your neighborhood? You don't, there, there are so many stories there that can be told. And I said, well, you know, some of my classmates, they're going to be writing stories about places they've been overseas and th this and that. He says, yeah, but just because it's where you know doesn't mean it's where everybody else knows. You can help people understand your community in ways that you don't even recognize right now. Um, just the stories about your neighborhood are just as important as the stories about mission work in South America. So why not write it? Why not? Wow. And so, and you did. Uh, and and now you're on your fourth book. So what is this about a chance encounter on Twitter launching your career? What's that about? Yeah, um, it took me a couple of years after graduation to decide to turn that short story into a novel. Um, and once I did, I was terrified to send it to literary agents um, because of the subject matter. You know, if you say Black Lives Matter to three different people, you're going to get three different reactions, maybe mm -hmm. 30 different reactions. Um, and even at that time, it was that way. And so I went on Twitter and a literary agency held a question and answer session. And I simply asked if a subject like this was even appropriate for a young adult novel. And an agent responded and he said, yeah, actually, I'd love to read that. So I polished the manuscript up a little bit. I sent it to him and he read it and loved it and signed me as a client. And we worked on it a little bit more together and he submitted it to publishers and 13 U.S. publishers fought for the rights to that book, along with wow. Hollywood producers and foreign publishers. So a tweet really started my career. So Twitter is good for something. <laughs> <laughs> 
Go ahead, Angie. That that is fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. I want to I want to widen the aperture on this conversation and just get your thoughts on where you think America is right now. We have gone from in the span of seven months protests over the killing of George Floyd to just two week two weeks and a day ago the storming of the United States Capitol by uh, white nationalist domestic terrorists. What do you think, what's your view of where America is right now? America is at a critical point right now. And it is well beyond time for America to recognize that the sins of the past are the sins of the present. Um, it's past time for America to recognize that you can't expect um, people to just get over 400 years of oppression and 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 just brush it under the rug. Um, it, it it it's um it's astonishing to me that we're still having conversations about whether racism exists or not. It's astonishing to me that people don't recognize systemic racism exists. It, it, and and it, it really blows my mind when people are more afraid of being called a racist than of being racist. Um, we, we're at a time right now, I think, where there is more awareness, but there are still people who are pushing back. But history repeats itself in so many ways. I look at how, um, there is so much misinformation regarding the Black Lives Matter movement. I look at how Black Lives Matter is villainized and it's a repeat of what we've seen in the past in this country. Um, Dr. King is beloved now, but when Dr. King mm -hmm. was alive, he was hated. Um, the man was assassinated. Let's just be clear about that. And, and if, until people recognize that it's the same thing happening. The same misinformation, the same villainizing is happening all over again. We're not going to get anywhere. And I need more people to be aware of that, that, that this, is, this is America. This is what America does when Black people or marginalized people speak up and speak out against injustice. There is an attempt to villainize them, to silence them. And, and until we recognize that and work towards fixing that, we're going to have this happen again and again and again. Every time a movement comes forth, every time a movement gains traction, there's going to be an attempt to villainize it as opposed to actually listening to the concerns of that movement. What is so wrong with me saying that my life matters? What is so wrong with me calling attention to that? If you have a problem with the phrase Black Lives Matter, it's not because you feel left out. It's because really deep down, you are terrified of Black people getting the equity that they have always deserved. What, what does it mean to you? Um, okay, I have to say amen. I can't go to the next question and not say amen to that sermon you just did, <laughs> Angie. Um, but yesterday was historic on so many levels, but the top level being we just inaugurated the first woman president vice president, the first black woman to be vice president, and the first Indian American woman to be vice president of the United States for you and for black women and black girls all across the country. What does it mean to you to have Kamala Harris a heartbeat away 
from the presidency? It means a lot. Representation is so important. And if nothing else, it's going to show young Black girls that they can be vice presidents, that, that, that the sky isn't the limit when there are footprints on the moon. Or in this case, there are, um, there's a Black woman walking through the White House, you know? Um, it, it means that we're, we're still making progress, even in the face of so many injustices, that, that progress is still moving forward. Um, progress is, it, it still has a heartbeat. Um, it's still alive. It's still, it's still well. Um, and, and that, you know, even with everything that Black people in this country have been through um, since this country's inception, we are still finding ways to thrive. We are still making impacts. Um, it also goes to show that once again, you know, Black women are coming to save the day. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm, ex I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful with this incoming administration. But for me yesterday, seeing a Black woman sworn in as vice president, it, it, it was a wonderful moment. Um, th there was no better feeling than that. And before I let you go, your reaction, what was your reaction to Amanda Gorman as a writer, her poem yesterday? Oh my goodness, that poem, it, it gave me chills. That poem was everything we needed and then some. It was a bomb. Um, <laughs> it was a much needed bomb. Um, and and it, it shows so much. For me, she's brilliance personified. And, and it shows the power and the strength in her, but also it, 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 I hope it showed the power and the strength that's within so many of us. That poem was so inspiring. If you didn't walk away inspired from that, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and and I, I have to admit, you know, I, I, was a little, I was a little more blown away when I saw an interview with her um, and her bookshelves were behind her and The Hate You Give was on her shelf prominently. I felt very good about that. So um, I'm honored to know that she's read my book. Um, I'm excited to see what she continues to do, but also she's so young. And I hope this shows people that, it reminds people that young people have some of the most powerful voices in this country. We just got to start listening. Real fast, because we are basically have like 30 seconds left, but I know your your next work is going to be a fantasy novel um, themed around Black liberation. In one sentence, what's it going to be about? Literal Black girl magic. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's that is, well, that is perfect. A Angie Thomas, I think you realize that I can sit here and talk to you all day. <laughs> all day long. No, I and I, I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when this pandemic is over, we we will have to sit down and meet. That would be terrific. We are out of time. Angie Thomas, author of The Hate You Give, author of The Concrete Rose, and two other books, plus one book about literal Black girl magic coming out soon. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Uh, come back to Washington Post Live uh, today at 2 p.m. when my Washington Post opinions colleague, Mike Duffy, will sit down with newly elected Georgia Congresswoman Nakima uh, Williams. And then tomorrow, I will be back at 9 a.m. Eastern for First Look. That is Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis with Washington Post reporters and columnists. And as you might imagine, 
it will focus on the inauguration of, of yesterday and then look ahead to the Biden agenda. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.